Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mrs. G's Storytime. I am excited to be back with you. It has been too, too long since we've been together, and I hope that you're glad to be here as well. We're going to start reading Christian biographies, which I love to read Christian biographies, and I hope that they bless your heart as much as they do mine. The first biography we're going to be reading is By Searching, My Journey Through Doubt into Faith by Isabel Kuhn, with permission of OMF International, which means Overseas Missions Fellowship. The question that pierced the midst in Job 11.7, Can you, by searching, find out God? And the answer is Jeremiah 29.13, You shall seek me and find me, and when you shall search for me with all your heart. Then John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John 5.39, search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. And that's in John 7.17. Chapter 1. On the Misty Flats. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway and the low soul gropes below, and in between on the misty flats the rest drift to and fro. But to every man that openeth a highway and a low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. Of course, no one in this enlightened age believes any more in the myths of Genesis. But here Dr. Sedgwick paused his lecture as if a second thought had occurred. With a twinkle in his eye, he said, Well, Maybe I'd better test it out before being so dogmatic. Facing the large freshman class, who were hanging on his words, pulling his face into gravity, he asked, Is there anyone here who believes there's a heaven and a hell? Who believes that the story of Genesis is true? Please raise your hand. And he waited for a response. Up went my hand as bravely as I could muster courage, and I also looked around to see if I had a comrade in my stand. Only one other hand was up, and all that big group of perhaps a hundred students, Dr. Sedgwick smiled. Then, as if sympathetic with our embarrassment, he conceded, Oh, you just believe that because your papa and your mama told you so. Then he proceeded with his lecture, assuming once and for all that no thinking human being believed the Bible anymore. Brought up in an earnest Presbyterian home, My grandfather was a Presbyterian minister and my father an ardent lay preacher. I had been carefully coached in the refutations of modernism before my parents had allowed me to enter the university. If it had been a case of arguing the claims of modernism versus fundamentalism, I do not think I would have been shattered in my faith. But there was no argument. There was just a pitying sneer. Oh, you just believe that because your papa and your mama told you so and then the confident assumption that no person nowadays who thought for themselves were scientific in their approach to life believe that old story anymore. On the way home from class, I faced the charge honestly. Why did I believe the Bible? The Genesis explanation of life's origin. Why did I believe in heaven and hell? It was because I had been taught it by my parents in the church from the hour I could understand anything. Was that reason enough to accept it? No. I agreed with Dr. Sedgwick that it was not sufficient basis to build my life upon. We had experienced remarkable answers to prayers in our family life. Didn't that prove the existence of God? 
but my psychology course taught me that mind had powerful effect over matter. If I had not been so gullible, maybe I could have seen a natural explanation. Our 20th century believed only when there was a test and a proof. We were scientific in our investigations. We did not swallow the superstitions of our ancestors just because they were handed to us. Dr. Sedgwick, professor of the English department in our university, was an ardent follower of Matthew Arnold's sweetness and light philosophy and Thomas Hardy's materialism. Yet he was so apparently patient and kind towards us, whom he felt were still bound by our parents' old-fashioned thinking, that he won our affection and respect. At the end of my walk home, I came to the conclusion I would henceforth accept no theories of life, which I had not proved personally. And quite ignorant of where that attitude would lead me, I had unconsciously stepped off the highway where a man walks with his face lifted Godward, and the pure piney sense of the heights call him upward. I had stepped onto the misty flats, the in-between, level place of easy going, nothing very good attempted, yet nothing bad either. There people walk in the mist, telling each other that no one can see these things clearly. There the in-betweeners drift to and fro. Life has no end but amusement and no purpose. The herd drifts with the strongest pull, and there's no reason for opposing anything. Therefore, they have a kind of peace and a mutual link, which they call tolerance. Did not know that I had stepped down to the misty flats. I was just conscious of a sudden, pleasant freedom from old duties. If there was no God, why bother to go to church on Sundays, for instance? Why not use Sundays to catch up on sleep so that I could dance half the night away several times during the week? Again, if the Bible was but a record of myths and old-fashioned ideas, why read it every morning? That took time. It was much easier to sleep until the very last moment, getting up just in time for the first class at college. Prayer, too, became silly. Talking to someone who maybe didn't exist. I would not call myself an atheist because, well, there were those childhood answers to prayer still to be accounted for, but I called myself an agnostic. I frankly did not know if there was a God or not. It was a popular thing to be in the Misty Flats. You had plenty of company. And one was respected as being modern and intelligent to question the old face. Lives drifted along so pleasantly for a while. My home training still had an effect upon me. Jesus Christ, now blurred in the mist which denied his Godhead, was an acknowledged historical character, and his name was still an ointment poured forth to me. He was like a perfume which haunts and calls so that one stops, lifts his head, and drinks it in wistfully. His name was the sweetest melody I knew, and it never failed to stir my heart, even though I had ceased to seek him. His purity and holiness made me hate besmirking things. All this because my father and mother had taught me so. So when I broke with the old religious habits and frankly went into the world, I still, choosing what I did, I never smoked. The tainted breath and stained fingers of the teeth of the smokers revolted me, and I told myself I was too dainty for such things. Neither did I drink. My father, broken-hearted at my callous turning of the back on all my home training, still warned me as a medical man what drink could do to a girl. Drink affects men and women biologically, and under its influence, girls can be led into sin that they could never consent to when in possession of their senses. Dr. Hall and I have had such come to us for consultations all the time. They never meant to, but there they are. Keep away from liquor and you can keep yourself pure, perhaps. So I did not drink, 
also I had signed the pledge when 12 years old and a certain whimsical loyalty to my childhood self kept me from breaking it. Amidst the group at the university, I was considered a good girl and even a Christian, but I myself knew that I wasn't. In my studies, I took the honors course in English language and literature. It brought me much under the influence of Dr. Sedgwick, but in my extracurricular activities, I mostly was interested in the Players Club, the amateur theatrical club of the university. Apparently, I had a gift for acting comedy parts, and in my freshman year, I won the life membership in the Players Club, an honor not usually attained by first-year students. The staff patron of our theatricals was Professor H.G.C. Wood, also a member of the English faculty. He was a believer in God and Christ, not an atheist like Dr. Sedgwick. His friendship helped keep me from the extremes. The theater was his hobby and soon became mine. Urgently, my mother pleaded with me to attend the Young Women's Christian Association. I went several times, but it was frankly bored, so dropped it. I loved the theater, and I liked to dance, and these activities occupied my spare time. In fact, our Varsity 1922 yearbook has, as comment opposite my picture, Oh, the tilt of her heels when she dances. No shadow of a missionary there. In my second year, I was elected to the Secretary of Student Council. At that time, it was the highest position to which a woman student could be elected. I met the the leading people of the university and became secretly engaged to Ben, one of the star rugby and basketball players. Ben was a returned soldier from World War I, several years older than I, not handsome, but six feet two or three in height. He came of a good Baptist family, and my mother encouraged our friendship. He even took me to his church on Sunday nights. It made a nice, inexpensive gift, for Ben did not have much money. When he asked me to marry him, he said our engagement must be kept secret, lest his old man be angry with him for getting involved before he graduated. I insisted that my parents be told, but his never were. We went together for nearly two years, and my path was perceptually a downgrade. Next time will be Chapter 2, Slippery Ways in Darkness. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.